We, as we continue through the book of Romans, are now in Romans chapter 7. Obviously, I couldn't fit the whole sermon text in to the bulletin, um, but I invite you, if you have your Bible with you, or you probably have a phone with a Bible app, because that's how we do it now, uh, you can go to Romans 7 if you want to follow along with me. This is God's Word. Let us give it our full attention. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking of those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of a written code. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But that which did that which is good then bring death to me by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want... I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Wretched man that I am, 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do once again ask that you would come and attend the proclamation of your word by your spirit so that you might renew us in the grace of your gospel. And in being renewed, we would produce the fruit that would glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, everybody in this world, whether they are a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a pagan or an atheist or whatever, they all, all of us, have some standard of morality that we try to conform our life around. We, we all have a code by which we live our life. And even those who reject God's law as revealed in the scriptures do have a moral code. Let me give you an example. I'm sure you have seen some version of those yard signs or banners with the the brightly colored lettering on there. And there is this postmodern creed where they say, in this house, we believe that love is love. Science is real. Uh, Black lives matter. No human is illegal. Women's rights are human rights. And kindness is everything. That's a moral code. It's a law that people are trying to live by because they believe that when they do, they'll make the world a better place. In other words, they will save humanity from the mess of this fallen, sin-cursed world. And in saving humanity, they are the better people. They are the moral example of what real humanity looks like. Now, I know based on the truth of God's word that none of those things is going to save humanity. I can also guarantee that the people who make that creed their moral code aren't even fulfilling what they claim to be believing and following. Because just take the last line, kindness is everything, and disagree with them on one point and see if you are treated with kindness. They fail their own moral code. Now, as Christians, though, we do the very same thing. We create a moral code that if we follow it, we think we will become more holy, that we will become better Christians. Now, that moral code might be the moral code of the law of God, the absolute standard of God's righteousness. And so our thinking typically would go like this. Well, I know I'm saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, but now that I am saved, that I am a child of God, I need to become a better person, a more holy person, simply by doing more. I need to love God more. I need to love my neighbor more. I need to give to missions more. I need to to spend more of my time doing those things that glorify and please God. I need to do big things for God, not little things, so that I can become more holy. And the trouble is with that kind of thinking is it's never enough because we still sin. We still get angry. We still have impure thoughts. We still say those things that cut and hurt others. We still ignore the good things that we should do and we do the horrible bad things that we should not do. Even the Apostle Paul says in verse 19 here in Romans 7, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, that is what I keep on doing. 
And this is why we need Romans 7 as Christians. Because we're so tempted to think that the normal Christian life is an extraordinary life. But it's not. What we learn here is that the normal Christian life is simply one of faithfulness, not perfection. It's one of continually turning in faith and repentance to Jesus because you have the hope that ultimately God can and will save you from not just the power of sin, but the presence of sin in your life. Your hope is in Christ alone. And if you're a Christian, though, no doubt you are tired of that internal struggle within your soul between what you desire and what you often do. You're tired of dealing with the same sins and you want a solution. Well, the good news is we have one here in Romans 7. And it begins by remembering first that you are part of a new covenant. You're part of a new covenant. We see this in verses 1 through 6. What I mean by that is you are not covenanted to God's law. Instead, you're part of something new, something better. You are covenanted to God by grace through Jesus. So Paul shows us this by way of a metaphor here. And that metaphor, of course, is the institution of marriage. Why marriage? Because marriage is instituted by God as a covenant relationship. And most of society today doesn't view marriage that way. Marriage is merely contractual. But it doesn't matter how we as humans might try to define marriage. God gets the ultimate voice in that. After all, it is his creation, his institution. And a marriage then is an is a indissoluble covenant between one man and one woman before God. Jesus said this in Mark 10, verse 9. He says, what God is joined together, let man not separate. And there are only three things in the Bible that can end a marriage. Death, unfaithfulness, and abandonment. Paul speaks of the first one here. So in Romans 7, verse 2, he says, for, for a married woman is bound by law, it's covenant law, to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. She's released from that covenant. Consequently, he explains that if a woman lives with another man while her husband is still alive, well, that's the sin of adultery. But if her husband dies and she marries another, she's not committing adultery. Why? Because the covenant between her and her first husband has come to an end through death. So Paul wants us to think here about the law of God as a covenant. And he's saying that before you came to Christ, you were married, you were in a covenant relationship to the law. And that is vastly different than saying that the law of God is a rule you see, the law is a rule for the believer. It's a rule for life and godliness. It tells us how we can bring glory to God by loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. But it is not the same as the law being a covenant over you. The law as a covenant requires perfect, absolute, perpetual, ongoing obedience to the demands of that covenant in order to remain in good standing or right standing with the covenanted party. 
So in the garden, God gave Adam a law. That law is rightly called a covenant of works because it, it, if he kept it and did what it demanded, it would have resulted in the fulfillment of the promise of eternal life. But the opposite was true as well. The breach of that law would bring about death, which we know from Genesis 3 is exactly what happened and continues to happen to all people born into this world since we are all descended from Adam. And so Paul explains in verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. We were under the covenant of the law. Once during Jesus' earthly ministry, a young wealthy man came up to Jesus and he asks him, and you can read this in Matthew 19, he says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? See, he's thinking about the law as a covenant. If I keep it, I earn the promise of eternal life. And so Jesus tells him this, he says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments, keep the law as a covenant. And so the wealthy young man asked Jesus then, well, which ones? And Jesus lists some of them. He says, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man replies to Jesus. He says, well, I've, I've kept all those. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen. So what am I still lacking? He asked Jesus. And Jesus goes straight for his heart. He says, well, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And the Bible tells us that the young wealthy man left in sorrow and disgust because he could not do that. He couldn't let go of his many possessions. The young men thought that he had kept the law as a covenant, but Jesus said, you really haven't done it, have you? And so you have the reward of your covenant breaking, which is death. You are not perfect. You are a covenant breaker. And that is bad news. It's horrible news. Because we're all like that young man. We're all like Adam. We don't keep the law. We break the covenant of the law. But the good news is, that in Jesus, you are made part of a better covenant. Not a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. Just as a married woman is no longer in covenant with her first husband when he dies, so she is free to marry another, so are you. You are united to Jesus through faith, and you are dead then to the law as a covenant through Christ. Through Christ you have a new husband, and it is Jesus himself. You're under a new covenant, a new rule. You're part of a new people, united to God through Jesus. And so Paul writes in verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. 
and united to Jesus. You now serve God through this new way of the Spirit. God has written His law on your heart. You, you do not keep yourself covenanted to God through a written code, but God keeps you as His own through His grace as you come to Christ. In Jesus, believers are set free from the old husband of the law to be united to their new one in Jesus. You're part of Christ's bride, his church under this new covenant, which fundamentally changes the way you approach God's law. So now you're not covenanted to it. Now it is a rule, a means of living your life for the glory of God. And Paul gets more into that later in Romans. But the law... You are not under it as a covenant anymore because you belong to Christ. Which is great news because the next thing we see in Romans 7, verses 7 through 20, is that what the law commands you to do, you cannot do. As hard as you may try. Someone may ask, well, if by the law sin comes alive in me, Paul... Doesn't that make the law evil? And of course, he gives us another, certainly not, absolutely not. He makes it very clear that the law is absolutely holy, good, and righteous. Which makes sense, because it is God's law, after all, that it comes from God who is holy and good and righteous. And there are many reasons that we could point to for why the law is good and holy and righteous. Paul gives us a couple here in Romans 7. First of all, the law tells you what you need to know about yourself. So he says in verse 7, speaking of himself, Paul says, If it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin, for I would have I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law told Paul, Paul, you're not as righteous as you think you are. In fact, you are a sinner. You are a lawbreaker. You have failed the standard. Now let's think about that regarding what we know of Paul's life. This section of Romans, Romans 7, is largely autobiographical. So let's think about Paul's life. If we go to another letter of his, to the Philippians, the book of Philippians, and that letter to the Philippian church, Paul tells us what he was like pre-conversion. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And confidence in the flesh means confidence in himself, particularly confidence in his ability to use the law as a covenant, just like that rich young man who came to Jesus. And Paul lists why he had so much confidence in his flesh. In Philippians 3, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, in regards to righteousness of the law, or at least the way he perceived righteousness of the law, he says, I was blameless. Nobody could say, hey, Paul, you're breaking the law. Nobody could bring a charge against him. But then you look back then to Romans 7, and Paul says this. The very commandment, verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death. 
to me. Well, what changed? Well, the law exposed Paul to the reality of his flesh. That is to say, the, the reality of who he is. His outward righteousness wasn't enough to save him from his inward unrighteousness. And so Paul mentions specifically his prohibition against coveting here in Romans 7. And why does he mention coveting and not any of the other laws of the Ten Commandments? Well, because coveting or covetousness is a motion of the heart. It's a sin of the heart. It's not an external sinful action like murder, theft, and adultery that you can look at and say, yeah, that's a sin. It's inward. It's an internal sinful desire. Of course, those other commandments involve internal sinful desires as well, but covetousness is a very clear one. Covetousness is an envious desire to have something that is not yours because you're not satisfied with what you have. And what Paul coveted was the righteousness from the law and believed that he then had the power and the ability to seize that for himself and attain the promise of life for himself. He wanted a righteousness he didn't have, the inward righteousness that is required. And so he tried through outward morality, following a written code, to make his heart clean so that he could earn that promise of life. And he couldn't do it. He wanted holiness on his terms so that he could obtain and earn what he didn't have. But in doing that, he found out that even in that way of thinking, of thinking that he had the ability to actually earn righteousness, he was failing to obtain it with just that thought. That failure was sin. He coveted what the law had, perfect holiness. He thought he could take it to himself through a means that God had not prescribed and he couldn't do it. And so he says in verse 11, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Paul saw his sin and the very law he thought he was keeping. And it cut through all those external layers of piety, pulling them aside to show that in his heart, he was just as impious as anyone else. He was dead in his sin. So much so that through the goodness of the law, death, the penalty of sin came upon him. He says in verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. That's the law. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the law tells us, or the law is good because it tells us what we need to know about ourselves. And that is that we are not good. And even in trying to be good, we show that we really are not. We are not righteous. We are sinful beyond measure. We are more sinful than we ever could think ourselves to be. And the law of God tells us that. It shows us that. What it commands, we cannot do. And for that reason, the law is good. And it is holy and it is righteous because knowing what we can't do is the first step 
and falling upon the mercy of God. See, the law, secondly, is good because it shows us what our capacity or what our ability is. Verse 14 is a key to understanding this entire chapter. Paul says there, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. The law is spiritual, but I, Paul, am fleshly. And notice now that Paul is speaking in the present. He's actually speaking of his reality as a Christian, as a believer, as a follower of Christ. He's saying the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly. He's come to realize something about the nature of God's law and the nature of himself. Now, the flesh here doesn't mean the physical body. He's not making some sort of Gnostic statement that the law is spiritual and everything else in this world is material and fleshly and we just need to get to this higher plane of life. No, he's not doing that. He's talking about the flesh as an existence in the fallen kingdom of Adam. It is who we are by nature of being born as humans, being from Adam. It is our sin nature. That's how the Bible talks about the flesh. The flesh is sold under sin. And when Paul says that here in Romans 7, he doesn't have in mind uh, what he was talking about back in chapter 6, about being a slave to sin. Notice he doesn't say, I am flesh and sold under sin. He's not saying my identity is sin. He's saying, I am flesh sold under sin. It's a statement of capacity and ability, not identity. So Adam sold all humanity out to the flesh so that as a matter of function, we're unable to do the things that we're required to do. We are wounded in our flesh because of sin. Now back in Philippians, Paul says, I had great confidence in my flesh as being a person under Adam, of being under this covenant of works, this covenant of the law. But here in Romans 7, Notice his tone is completely changed. He says, now that I'm a believer, I have no confidence in my flesh at all. Verse 18, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then he clarifies it. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability, the capacities to carry it out. Notice Paul has a desire to do what is right. That desire is a desire for the actual law of God, to glorify God, to to love Him and love our neighbor as we are called. And that desire comes from the new life, the life of the Spirit that is given to every believer. You see, Paul really wants to be holy, not merely moral, holy. Completely right with God, pure, free from the very presence of sin. That is not a desire that unbelievers have. Only believers experience that through the Spirit of God. But in Paul's fleshliness, he says, I don't have the ability to make that happen. And so he explains, verses 19 and 20, I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want, that is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I, there's his identity, 
It is no longer I who do it. Why? Because now he is in Christ. That's his identity. Now he belongs to the Spirit. But when he sins, it is not the Spirit. It is not who he really is that is sinning. He says it is sin that dwells in me. It is the flesh. It is that old nature. And what he just described there is the normal Christian life. It is what we all experience. I think we would nod our heads and say, yeah, I get it, Paul. You see, the normal Christian life is one that understands you cannot use the law for what it demands. It demands absolute holiness because it is good, holy, and righteous. It comes from God. But it cannot, you cannot produce that in yourself. You need a foreign righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. See, at the same time, that we have this old nature, we know that there is a new identity, a new nature that belongs to the Christian because believers are not covenanted to the law anymore. They're covenanted to God through Christ. And so we have a new heart, a heart like Paul describes here that, that desires to be what God has created us to be. And so because of this, because of this new nature of who we really are, and there is this old nature of the flesh, there is a conflict in the soul. And that is why Paul says in verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, and remember members is all that you are, mind, will, emotions, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And so the normal Christian life isn't one that says I'm going to be morally perfect. It is one of struggle. It is an up and down, back and forth conflict in your heart between the sinner that you were in Adam and the saint that you are in Christ, between righteousness and unrighteousness, doubt and belief. And that is why you struggle with sin, even though you at the same time desire the glory of God. And it's really easy to grow discouraged and despondent about that. I mean, even Paul felt the pain and sorrow of that present reality in this life. He says so in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That clash that is inside your soul is actually a proclamation that something good and wonderful has happened that God has done for you and that he is currently working in your life and will bring to completion. See, while it is true that the law commands you to do absolute holiness, and that is something you cannot do, cannot make yourself holy, it is also true, and this is the last thing we see in Romans 7, that what you cannot do, Jesus did for you. Jesus makes you holy. So Paul answers his own question. He says, wretched man that I am. There's this conflict that is there. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I don't want this old nature there anymore. I want to walk completely in the Spirit in what I am in Christ. 
And he answers it in doxology and praise. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul knew that the final victory belonged to Jesus. And since Paul belonged to Jesus, that victory was his also. He had stepped from the the shadow of sin and into the light of God's holiness through Christ who is the bridge. Not through his moralist attempts to make himself better, but he ran to Christ who died and rose to make him into the person God had created him and designed him to be. Now, no doubt... Most of you are like me. You probably get discouraged when you look into your own heart. You know that you don't love God as you ought. That your devotion often grows cold. That you struggle with the same sins again and again. You don't want to do them, but you do them anyway. Well, Romans 7 is your hope. It's written to encourage you to not give up that struggle and not give up that fight because the victory is already yours in Christ Jesus. You don't win it. Jesus has already won it. Far too often, we try to grow in holiness apart from Christ. By trying to keep God's law, which is good and holy and righteous, trying to keep it on our own. But the law tells us every time we do that, you can't do this. You can't produce what it's asking. But Jesus can, and Jesus will, and Jesus does. Which means that the way that we grow in holiness then, is not by trying harder to be more moral, as good as that might be, but by following faithfully after Jesus through the means He has given you to do so. And what are those means? How do we know Christ? How do we grow in knowledge of Him? By those simple means of grace. His Word, sacraments, prayer, fellowship. Doing the normal ordinary things that the Bible says we are expected to do as Christians. It's the normal Christian life. It's not flashy at all. It's not big or dramatic. It's quite simple. And that's a good thing because there's a peace in that simplicity. There isn't some magic formula that you follow and all of a sudden you're holy. It's simply this. Be faithful to Jesus. Keep going to Him. When you sin, confess it. Repent. Fall at His feet. Keep worshiping your Lord. Keep looking to Him. Keep yourself under the proclamation of His Word regularly. Keep feeding upon Him through His table. Keep praying even when it doesn't feel right, or even when your heart says don't do it, just pray and stay in fellowship with God's people where you will grow and encourage one another in the holiness that is yours in Christ. You see, sanctification isn't some complex process. 
There's a lot of books that have been written and sermons preached that make it that way. But it's quite simple. It's the normal Christian life. It's drawing closer to the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Trying harder to keep the law is not going to save you from this body of death. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ can, He has, He will, and He does. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We're thankful that you make us holy. You make us righteous. Not by anything we have done, but purely by your mercy and grace in Christ who rescues us from our sin, washes them all away, forgives us and clothes us in his righteousness so that we are called sons and daughters of God Almighty. I pray, Father, that you would renew our faith in Jesus this morning that you would encourage us in the fight that takes place in our souls in this present life, that we would not grow weary or discouraged, but that you would build us up and strengthen us and prepare us and help us all the more to run to Jesus when we do feel discouraged, knowing that you will finish that great work that you have begun in us through Christ our Lord until he comes. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.